0: That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Abaya Colburn was a farmer by trade, although not a very successful one. A combination of bad weather, bad business decisions, and just plain bad luck left him deeply in debt. He knew that if his fortune didn't turn around soon, he might end up losing everything he owned. So imagine Abaya's amazement when one day in 1810, the Vermont farmer encountered something completely remarkable. Something that he quickly realized might just be his ticket to salvation. That something came in the form of his six-year-old son, Zera. One day, while Abaya was busy doing carpentry around the farm, he noticed Zira playing with a pile of wood chips. Only the boy wasn't just playing with the chips. He was counting them. Which, on the surface, isn't all that unusual. It was what the boy did next that really surprised him. He noticed that six-year-old Zira began muttering multiplication tables out loud. Three times six is eighteen. Five times seven is thirty-five six times eight is 48, and so on. This came as a complete shock to Abaya, considering that up until that point, Zira had only had about six weeks of schooling. And on top of that, his teachers had informed Abaya and his wife that their son was quote-unquote slow. The boy's father quickly dropped what he was doing and began quizzing him further, figuring this must be some sort of trick. But no matter what numbers Abaya threw at zero to multiply, the boy got it right. He even tried a pretty big math equation, something that a lot of us probably couldn't do quickly in our heads either. He asked him what 13 times 97 was. Zero responded immediately with the correct answer, 1,261. Words spread quickly throughout the community about this tiny math genius. Soon after, swarms of people from around town began dropping by the farm to test the little boy. After that went on for a bit, Colburn took this show on the road. He began traveling with Zera all over Vermont to demonstrate the boy's remarkable math skills. They met with judges, state legislators, and college professors, all of whom attempted to stump Zera with their own tough math problems. Only the boy always had the right answers. Immediately, and without hesitation. Someone even once tried tripping the boy up with the imponderable question, how many black beans would make five white ones? Zero replied, five if you skin them. By the time Zero Colburn was seven years old, he was able to calculate even more complex math problems in his head. Things like the number of seconds in 2,000 years, the product of 12,225 and 1,223, or the square root of 1,449. He was once asked the number of hours in 38 years, 2 months, and 7 days, and he gave the correct answer almost immediately. Zira even once really shocked some math professors by calculating that the sixth Fermat number wasn't a prime number. If you're not a math whiz, I don't blame you for not knowing exactly what that means. Just keep in mind that particular number was 4,294,967,297. And Zira did the calculations all in his head within just a few seconds. Meanwhile, Zira's father Abaya had numbers running through his head too. Only these were all preceded by dollar signs. He continued taking Zira on the road with him, eventually leaving both Vermont and his wife and other children behind. In New Hampshire, the president of Dartmouth College offered to educate Zira himself at his own expense. But Abaya rejected the offer. In Boston, a group of prominent men, including several Harvard professors, offered to raise $5,000 for Zira's education, half of which would go directly to Abaya. Only Abaya turned that down, too, saying the offer was too low. The father and son later booked passage to England despite the fact the War of 1812 was going on in the United States at the same time. Zira became a public sensation across the pond. Although many British papers at the time incorrectly referred to the boy as being Russian, because, considering the war going on at the time, it wasn't considered prudent to point out that Zero was actually born in the U.S., Wealthy benefactors continued to lavish the father and son with gifts throughout England. Among the dignitaries the pair met was then U.S. envoy John Quincy Adams. The future president of the United States even paid Abaya for a never-to-be-published book on Zira's mathematical gifts. Adams did manage to convince Abaya to allow Zira to study at the Lyceum Napoleon in France. But that didn't last long. And pretty soon, Abaya was hungry for money again. So he withdrew Zira from school and began dragging the boy around England and Ireland to once again show off his gifts. Abaya had big dreams of one day putting Zira on stage and having people pay admission to see him do math. But those dreams never came to fruition and Abaya died in poverty in 1824. Over the years, the Earl of Bristol befriended Zira and offered to fund the then 20-year-old's education in England, but all Zira wanted to do by that point was return home. When he got back to Vermont, Zira was shocked to see how much his mother and siblings had aged during the eight long years he'd been living abroad. He decided he was done with being a public spectacle. Zira settled down and rarely used his mathematical gifts ever again, instead choosing to take up a calling as a Methodist minister. He taught briefly at Norwich University, got married, and fathered six children of his own. He died in his mid-thirties of tuberculosis, having long since slipped out of the public's eye. That's the thing about child prodigies. It's actually pretty rare when they accomplish anything considered truly great once they reach adulthood. Sure, we can point to rare examples like Wolfgang Mozart and Pablo Picasso, both of whom demonstrated remarkable musical and artistic abilities as children. But in most instances, children who demonstrate amazing aptitudes in childhood tend to lose the public's attention once they're no longer children. The remarkable genius child you might hear about in the news graduating college at age 10 likely just grows into being a very intelligent adult, which just doesn't seem quite as newsworthy anymore. All this attention at a young age can prove to be a double-edged sword in the life of a child prodigy. Growing up under such a spotlight might seem wonderful to a little kid with remarkable gifts. Imagine having everyone look at you constantly and telling you how special you are. But once that spotlight recedes, as the child grows older, it can be difficult for that young adult to transition back to anything resembling an ordinary life. The sort of pressure that comes with always being extraordinary sometimes leads to tragic consequences. Such was the life led by a girl named Barbara Newhall Follett, who at a young age transfixed the literary world. She published her first novel, The House Without Windows, when she was just 12 years old, going on to receive much critical acclaim. But life wasn't easy for Barbara after that. And in December 1939, when she was 25 years old, Barbara walked out of her apartment and was never seen again. I'm Nate Hale, the original inspiration for Encyclopedia Brown, and this is The Conspirators. You could say that Barbara Newhall Follett was born to be a storyteller. Her father, Wilson Follett, was a literary editor, critic, and university lecturer, while her mother was a children's writer. Barbara was born on March 4, 1914. The Folletts chose to homeschool Barbara, and they noticed early on the girl had a particular aptitude for the written word. Her father wrote in Harper's Magazine how when Barbara was three she was always noticing the shapes of letters and common objects, like seeing A's in the gables of houses or H's in football goalposts. He wrote that one day Barbara wandered into his office and noticed his typewriter on his desk, and she became instantly fascinated by it. At the time, Barbara was still too young to write well with a pencil. But as soon as Barbara ran her tiny fingers over the keys, it was love at first sight. Wilson later gave Barbara a gift of her very own typewriter. And within a few years, the little girl was typing out her own poems and stories. One day during the winter of 1923, her parents were surprised to find the following note tacked to her bedroom door. It read, Nobody may come into this room if the door is shut tight. If it is shut, not quite latched, it is alright, without knocking. The person in this room, if he agrees that one shall come in, will say come in, or something like that. And if he does not agree to... You will say, not yet, please, or something like that. The door may be shut if nobody is in the room, but if a person wants to come in, knocks and hears no answer, that means there is no one in the room and he must not go in. Reason, if the door is shut tight and the person is in the room, the shut door means that the person in the room wishes to be left alone. Barbara wanted to be left alone a lot throughout her childhood. She didn't have many friends. One of her few activities outside of writing was ice skating with her imaginary friends. And particularly imaginary friends who just so happened to be fellow child prodigies like Mozart. When Barbara was five, she wrote a story titled The Life of the Spinning Wheel, The Rocking Horse, and The Rabbit. By age seven, she was composing poetry and song lyrics. But it was after she posted her notice to be left alone on her bedroom door at age eight that Barbara began to work on her biggest project yet, her first novel, Barbara's few friends who lived in the neighborhood didn't know what to make of her. There were days when she'd refuse to go out and play with them, instead choosing to lock herself away in her bedroom and hammer away at the keys, typing out page after page of her manuscript. She gave herself a one-year deadline to complete it, and she remained bound and determined to finish on time. Barbara's novel started out as a birthday present for her mother and soon grew into something much more. It was originally titled The Adventures of Epersip after the name of the main character, a little girl who runs away from home to live happily in the forest. Although it would later be published under the title The House Without Windows, she gave the manuscript to her mother as planned, but her mother, Helen, didn't get to keep it for very long because a fire destroyed the family home, taking the manuscript with it. But Barbara didn't completely despair the loss of what was up till then her life's work. She went ahead and painstakingly rewrote the 40,000-word manuscript over the next three years. It wasn't a word-for-word recreation, and in fact, she later claimed she liked the second draft even better. In February 1927, with the help of her father, who was by then an editor at Knopf Publishing House, Barbara's first novel was published to massive critical acclaim. She was just 12 years old at the time. Knopf initially agreed to do a print run of 2,500 copies of The House Without Windows, But after word got out about Barbara's young age, that initial run completely sold out before it even went to press. So they then agreed to do a second, even larger run that flew off bookstore shelves as well. Barbara was quickly hailed in the press as a child prodigy. The New York Times wrote a glowing review of the book that included a feature about this remarkable young talent behind it. The Saturday Review of Literature called The House Without Windows almost unbearably beautiful. Even literary legend H.L. Mencken chimed in and wrote a letter of appreciation to Barbara's parents, congratulating them on raising such a gifted little girl. You can read a lot into the story of The House Without Windows and with all the other books Barbara wrote throughout her life. A recurring theme of Barbara's writing is about escape and her love for the wilderness. The story of The House Without Windows is about a lonely little girl named Epersip, who runs away from her parents to live in the forest among the animals. She tries to convince others to live with her in the woods, her proverbial house without windows. For a time, she convinces her little sister to go with her, only her sibling gets homesick and leaves Ypresip alone. She goes through a series of adventures as a number of people try to take her out of the forest. But at the end of the book, Ypresip is surrounded by a swarm of butterflies who lift her up in the air and whisper a secret into her ear the reader isn't privy to. Ypresip is then transformed into a wood nymph, and she becomes one with the forest. Not everyone, though, was quite so glowing in their praise of Barbara Newhall Follett's literary accomplishment. Anne Carroll Moore was the creator of the Children's Room at the New York Public Library. She was also one of the most powerful literary critics of children's literature in the U.S. Although she publicly acknowledged Barbara's literary talent, Moore remained highly critical of Follett's parents for allowing this to happen. She believed allowing the girl to become a published author at such a young age, and putting her in the public spotlight so early was actually a major disservice to her. Moore wrote that a girl Barbara's age should be outside playing with her friends, not hobnobbing with the literary elite. Moore predicted Barbara would one day have to pay a hefty price for all this fame and public attention. It turned out she was right, too. Keep in mind, Barbara wasn't the first child to ever become a published author. Just seven years earlier, an 11-year-old boy named Horace Wade published a thriller titled The Shadow of Great Peril It received critical acclaim from the likes of F. Scott Fitzgerald. A year before that, a woman named Daisy Ashford published a novel titled The Young Visitors or Mr. Saltina's Plan. But in point of fact, Ashford was a grown woman at that point in her life, although she claimed to have written the manuscript for her novel when she was nine years old. Barbara was furious about Anne Moore's reaction to her literary stardom. She penned Moore an angry letter taking her to task for claiming her parents were tyrannizing her or had forced her into writing. Nothing could be further from the truth, she insisted. Barbara wrote, "'It is surely very rash to slam down into the mud a childhood and a system of living that you know nothing about. I am very much amused at the favorable reviews which are being written. I do not take them at all seriously.' but I do take seriously an article which distorts into a miserable character my living, my education, my whole personality. The following year, Barbara managed to convince her parents to do something else that undoubtedly Anne Moore would have deeply disapproved of. Barbara had long dreamed of sailing the high seas as a ship's crewman, and perhaps even turning the experience into fodder for another novel. So when Barbara was 13, she actually talked her parents into allowing her to take a trip on a lumber schooner through Nova Scotia. Although Barbara paid to be on the trip, she insisted on helping out and spending her days cleaning and cooking for the crew. Barbara would take her experiences aboard the schooner and use them for her next book, The Voyage of the Normandy. Although The House Without Windows was considered an enchanting example of children's literature, Barbara's second published novel was taken seriously as a real piece of adult literature. Now, Barbara is no longer considered a child author. Rather, she was being taken seriously as a real literary force to be reckoned with. The Saturday Review called The Voyage of the Normandy a fine, sustained, and vivid piece of writing. They did make a point, though, of mentioning in their review that Barbara had just turned 14 only 12 days before the book hit store shelves. But during that same week before the book was published, Barbara received some devastating news back home. Her father, Wilson Follett, told Barbara's mother he was leaving her for another woman. This was a crushing blow to Barbara, who idolized her father and believed he could do no wrong. When word of the affair came to light, Wilson was fired from his editor job at Knopf, leaving Barbara and her mother nearly penniless. So the two women had to get together and do what they did best to make ends meet. They took their typewriters with them and planned to set sail to the West Indies to write about their adventures. They did manage to co-author a book together, which would later be published as Magical Portholes, in 1932. But despite the happy spin their book put on things, Barbara and Helen's time traveling together was anything but. Barbara and Helen spent six months sailing the Caribbean, during which time they constantly argued. Helen later wrote to friends that Barbara had become difficult to be around and that she had become an emotional wreck in the wake of her father's betrayal. She even wrote that Barbara had grown so despondent she feared her daughter might commit suicide. But then something else unexpected happened at the tail end of Helen and Barbara's travels together. Barbara fell in love. The then 14-year-old Barbara met a 25-year-old sailor named Edward Anderson, and before long the two of them were spending an awful lot of alone time together. Now, Barbara never directly admitted to having a sexual relationship with Anderson, although she did write in some of her letters of the two of them having cherry and ice cream parties together and of taking long walks through virgin forests. But considering Barbara's love of metaphors, you can probably read a lot into that. Their relationship was, of course, legally considered statutory rape at the time, and Barbara's mother Helen was furious about it. Their travels together finally came to an end once they made their way to Los Angeles. It was there they agreed that time apart was the best thing for both of them. Barbara was left in the care of some family friends where she tried to get into some sort of normal life, while Helen went off to Hawaii to write another book. In L.A., Barbara began seeing a psychiatrist and even enrolled in junior college. But Barbara hated formal education, having spent her entire childhood being homeschooled by her parents. It also turned out the psychiatrist she started seeing didn't actually have any actual qualifications to be a psychiatrist, and on top of that was a convicted sex offender. There's no evidence the man in any way harmed Barbara, but it wasn't long before she finally got fed up enough to run away to San Francisco where she hid out in a hotel under the phony name of Kay Andrews. But the family friends she'd been staying with reported the young runaway to police who managed to track her down and burst into Barbara's hotel room and nab her just as she was attempting to jump out the back window. It's difficult to say whether this was Barbara's attempt to flee or if it was an actual suicide attempt. There isn't a lot of information about how high up that window was or if there was a fire escape outside it. But either way, the press spun the story as an attempted suicide. Headlines began appearing nationwide that this former child literary prodigy had attempted to take her own life. Barbara's fame and stardom completely crumbled after that. She and her mother Helen were soon reunited in New York. But they were in such dire financial straits by then that Barbara was forced to find work. She was 16 years old at the time. This was made even more difficult because the year was 1930 and the Wall Street crash had left millions unemployed nationwide. Barbara took a course in shorthand in business typing. Soon after, the girl the New York Times Review of Books had once described as being the literary equivalent of Mozart was riding the subway to do a job writing synopses of movies for Fox Studios. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandslots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandslots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Before we continue, I want to tell you about this episode's sponsor, Raycon. Now that Halloween has passed us, you know what that means? The holidays are right around the corner which means it's also time to start thinking about your holiday gift shopping. And one of the best gifts I can think to give is the gift of great music and great podcasts. An awesome way to say big on both and still give an amazing gift is to go for a set of Raycon wireless earbuds. I have a set of Raycon's everyday earbuds that I use when I'm working from home, out walking my dog, or just kicking back and relaxing and listening to some of my favorite podcasts. With seamless Bluetooth pairing and a comfortable noise-isolating fit, You can start listening right away and keep listening for hours. The audio quality is amazing, comparable to what you get from other premium brands, except Raycon starts at half the price. The new Everyday Earbuds come with three new sound profiles to make sure everything you're listening to sounds its best, with just the right amount of bass. There's Pure Mode, which is great for podcast listening and instrumentals, Balanced Mode, which sounds great with rock and heavy metal, and Bass Mode, for when you want to put on some hip-hop or anything else when you want to get your groove on. Raycon offers 8 hours of playtime and a 32-hour battery life. There's also a built-in microphone that allows you to take calls with just a push of a button. So this holiday season, get them something they can use for calls, music, work, or play. At home or on the go. Or treat yourself and pick up a pair of your own. Trust me, you'll use them all the time. Go to buyraycon.com slash tc to unlock exclusive deals and save up to 20% off your Raycon order. Hurry, this offer is available only for a limited amount of time, so you don't want to miss it. That's buyraycon.com slash tc to get 20% off. Buyraycon.com slash tc. And now, back to the show. That June, Barbara Newhall Follett wrote a letter about her personal despair. She said, My dreams are going through their death flurries. I thought they were all safely buried, but sometimes they stir in their grave, making my heartstrings twinge. I mean no particular dream, you understand, but the whole radiant flock of them, together, with their rainbow wings, iridescent, bright, soaring, glorious, sublime. They are dying before the steel javelins and arrows of a world of time and money. While Barbara worked her day job as a secretary, she got up extra early each morning and toiled away at another novel titled Lost Island, about a New York couple who gets shipwrecked on a deserted island. Like her previous novels, you can see elements of her personal life seeping into her storytelling as she writes about the loneliness and despair of life in New York City as well as her grand desire to be somewhere far away. Eventually, Barbara grew tired enough of city life that she decided to leave the city and began to explore the landscapes of the Northeast. She met a group of four friends and began making plans with them to hike the Appalachian Trail that summer. But two of the friends backed out, leaving only Barbara and a young man named Nickerson Rogers. The two of them carried on with their trip, and from there they eventually made their way to Europe, where they hiked their way through Spain, France, Switzerland, and Germany, telling everyone they met they were a married couple in order to avoid scandal. To add an extra wrinkle to Barbara's new love affair, it turned out she was still exchanging letters with the sailor Edward Anderson, whom she met when she was 14. The two of them had been writing to each other for years, and in many of his final letters to Barbara, Anderson professed his undying love for her, begging him not to leave her. But leave him she did. When she and Nick Rogers got back to Boston, the two of them got married. Barbara took a job as a secretary and tried settling into a normal domestic life. But Barbara's wanderlust got the better of her again. And eventually, she told Nick she wanted to enroll in some interpretive dance classes. The catch was, these classes were in California. Nick couldn't just up and quit his job to move, so Barbara left without him. And according to Barbara's letters, Nick was okay with this at first, thinking it would just be for a few months. But then, while Barbara was on the other side of the country, she received a letter from Nick informing her he had been having an affair and was planning on leaving her to be with his mistress. Barbara was devastated. It was just like her father leaving her all over again. Only this time Barbara refused to just sit by and let this happen. She hopped on the next bus back to Boston only to return to an empty apartment. Several of Nick's belongings were gone and Nick was nowhere to be found. Barbara called a doctor friend who actually provided her with alcohol and some sleeping pills to calm her nerves. After three days of existing in a drunken stupor, Nick returned home. He told Barbara he'd just been away on a business trip. Whether this was true or not, she never found out. But over the next few months, they tried to fix things and carry on as a married couple. But Barbara remained uneasy during this time. One day, while the couple were exploring Cape Cod, she came right out and asked him if things were going to work for them. Nick told her that he would like them to, but he really didn't know if they could at this point. In one of the very last things Barbara is known to have written, Barbara described her feelings at the time in a letter to a friend. In my last letter, I told you things were going well, and I thought they were. They continued to go well for a time, at least I thought so, and I was happy. No such luck. I don't know what to say now. On the surface, things are terribly calm. And wrong. Just as wrong as they can be. I'm trying. We're both trying. I still think there is a chance that the outcome will be a happy one, but I would have to think that anyway in order to live, so you can draw any conclusions you like from that. Then on December seventh, 1939, Barbara Newhall Follett left her apartment in Brookline, Massachusetts with $30 in her pocket and a notebook in her hand. She was never heard from again. To this day, what happened to Barbara Newhall Follett remains a mystery. Suspicions immediately fell to her husband, Nickerson, since it was revealed he waited two weeks to report her missing, and almost four months before he requested an official missing persons bulletin. In fact, we only have Nick's word for what happened to Barbara on the last day he saw her. Nick admitted to police that he and Barbara had argued right before she left, but he also believed Barbara would just reappear one day when she cooled down. The fact that this former child prodigy who had once been on the front page of newspapers across the country had gone missing went almost completely unnoticed for years. All the missing persons reports had been made under Barbara's married name of Rogers, so no connections were made to the child prodigy Barbara Newhall Follett. In fact, Barbara's own mother Helen didn't even realize her daughter was missing until the mid-1940s. Barbara's father, Wilson, later wrote a letter to The Atlantic in which he makes it sound like he believed his daughter was still alive. In fact, he even had the gall to scold her for not sticking it out through a tough spot on her marriage. Four years after Barbara vanished, Nick Rogers legally divorced Barbara. He then immediately married the woman he'd been having an affair with all along. It wouldn't be until 1966 when Helen co-authored an academic study on her daughter that the public really became aware that Barbara Newhall Follett had gone missing. Helen had spent the previous years urging police to look for Barbara, and in particular she tried focusing their attention on Nickerson, whom she suspected of foul play. She wrote to Nick himself that all his silence made him look as if he had something to hide regarding Barbara's disappearance. Nick Rogers denied everything. There's just so much we don't know about Barbara's last days that it's impossible to say for certain what her fate may have been. She was certainly troubled, and people who have read her final correspondences have read into them that they sounded like the words of a woman pondering committing suicide. Others have speculated that perhaps Barbara just packed up, changed her name, and started a new life somewhere else. Considering how little attention her disappearance caused, it seems possible she could have moved away and started over a life in complete anonymity. There also remains the tragic possibility that her husband murdered her. His seeming lack of interest following Barbara's disappearance certainly cast Nick under suspicion. And yet, there is also a possibility that Barbara was found. Or at least her remains were. On Thanksgiving Day 1948, a man named Harold Huckins went out deer hunting on Pulse for Hill in New Hampshire. He was walking near Swan Lake when he came to a shallow depression near the water. And in that depression, Harold found a few scattered human bones, along with a purse, an empty medicine bottle, some scraps of fabric, a pair of women's shoes, and a pair of women's horn-rimmed glasses, all of which some investigators believe may have belonged to Barbara. But although medical examiners at the time were able to determine the bones belonged to a 25-year-old woman, the same age as Barbara, police didn't connect that skeleton to Barbara Newhall Follett's disappearance, Rather, they made a public statement claiming the remains were actually those of a different missing woman. Police investigators said the bones were those of a 25-year-old woman named Elsie Whitmore, who had gone missing around the same time as Barbara. But, it turns out there were several discrepancies that call this identification into question. Medical reports show the bones would have come from a woman three inches taller than Elsie would have been. And in fact, Barbara was taller than Elsie. Besides that, the shoes they found with the remains also wouldn't have fit Elsie, but they were Barbara's size. There were also a pair of horn-rimmed glasses found at the scene. Elsie didn't wear glasses, but Barbara did. The location where the bones were found also had sentimental value to Barbara. It was right around the same area where she and Nick had spent nearly two weeks camping together before they headed out on their hike through the Appalachian Mountains. But despite how compelling all this evidence seems, there's just no way of knowing for certain if those remains were Barbara Newhall Follett. Police later admitted to losing their means and all other evidence collected in 1948. And that's just where we're at. Barbara Newhall Follett spent her life dreaming of adventure, traveling the world and living life among nature. We'll never know where she went or what happened to her in her final days. Perhaps like Zira Colburn, Barbara decided to live her adult life in anonymity, or perhaps like the little girl in her novel Barbara wrote when she was just a child herself. She went off into the woods and became one with them. The Conspirators is written and produced by me and A. Dale, an entirely fictional identity. Thanks so much for listening. I have a new patron supporter I'd like to give a shout-out to. Thank you to Brandon for signing up and helping support the show. Just a reminder that patrons of the show get access to all sorts of nifty bonuses, including stickers, magnets, t-shirts and our ever-growing library of bonus mini-episodes. If you like what I'm doing here by signing up for Patreon, you can hear lots more stories just like these. Another way you can help support the show is to check out our merch store, where you can purchase all sorts of conspirators, t-shirts, mugs, phone cases, and much, much more. If you're interested in that, I'll put a link to both my Patreon and merch store in the show notes. Yet another great way you can help us out that won't cost a dime is to subscribe, rate, and review us on Apple Podcasts. Each one of your ratings and reviews helps boost us in Apple's magical rankings and spreads the good word to more people. If you're not on Apple, not to worry, you can also find our show in most of the places you get your podcasts, including Spotify and Stitcher. We also have a website, theconspiratorspodcast.com, where you can listen to our entire back catalog of shows. Elsewhere, I encourage you to follow us on social media. You can find us on Twitter, Instagram, and our Facebook page. You can even write to us, an old-fashioned email, conspiratorspodcast at gmail.com. I love to hear from you. Thanks again for listening, and I hope you'll join us again next time.